Thank you, Bev. That was beautiful. I'll be reading from uh, chapters or Psalms chapter 9, 1 through 2, and 7 through 11. I will praise you, Lord, or I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will govern the peoples with justice. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name will trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Sing praise to the Lord and throw it in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. Amen. All right. Matthews 15, verse 7 through 9. Hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. I always appreciate hearing from our youth. Yes, you always do. Thank you so much. Um, today we continue something, a journey we've been on for a while. Some of you may be here uh, for the first time or haven't been making this journey with us, so I'll recap it quickly. I took a sabbatical from February until end of April. It was a wonderful journey of a time away from the regular routines of work and gave me some time to reflect on uh, what was important to get to some places that I wanted to go, one of which was the One Project in Chicago. Now they're going to be in Seattle in February, and we're scheduled to go again to that. The question that they're asking is, is Jesus at the center of your faith? And with that question, I came back to you with a a variation on this. I asked this congregation, is the story of Jesus embedded in the story of God and humanity still a meaningful story? Then I ask, is it still a relevant story? And then I asked, if it's a relevant story and a meaningful story, how do we build our lives around it? And are you willing to do that? Now, I still cannot make the decision for you to build your lives around the story of Jesus. Only you can do that. And it's going to look as different as all of the faces in this room. There's not a cookie-cutter way to answer this. No two disciples were exactly alike. They each ministered in a different place and in a different way. They each accomplished something that God called them to that only they could accomplish. So my program, since I've asked these questions, is not to move us into a way, but to give us tools for asking ourselves, what does it look like to build a life around the story of Jesus? Several weeks ago now, I admitted to you something that I think I've not wanted to fully admit, and that is that in the way in which we live our lives in Christian witness, word is required. I 
wanted to believe, and I think many of you have wanted to believe, that just living ethically or living well or living kindly or uh, being somehow exemplary, um, being a loving sort of sacrificing person or something would communicate the gospel. And I think it does in a very interesting way, in a very sort of limited way, but mostly the result of that is that when everything is said and done, people aren't going to say, now that was a Christian and I want a Christian. They're going to say, yeah, he was a good person among good people. You see, if Jesus had come and just lived his life doing nice things, taking care of his mom and dad and and being dutiful and so forth and so on, if he had never preached anything radical, if he had never healed anybody, if he had never fulfilled his unique mission, would we be talking about him today? There would be no story to tell. You would not be here today. Or if you were, we would have our yarmulkes on or something. It would not be the religion that, that we're, we're, we're practicing today. I'm, I'm just being frank with you. And part of Jesus' work was word. He was the word who became flesh, yes. And he spoke the word that was God's word generating good things among us. It was word that created, yes. And it was word that comes to us in the flesh that speaks to us again of the God who would recreate us and claim us as his own. You see, the beauty of Christian life is that while it takes us where we are, it never leaves us where we are. There is a journey implied here. Justification is great because it makes us right with God in this moment, but it isn't ultimately satisfying because unless we're willing to journey with God past that moment of being made right, we don't have any change in character. We don't have any growth. So several weeks ago, I admitted that word had to accompany witness. But then what does that look like? You see, how is it that we witness in word? And uh, I I cited a couple of things that I'm not comfortable with that I've seen happen that always embarrass me a little bit. It's it's the uh, you're at the restaurant and somebody next to you orders shrimp and you kind of clear your throat and look over and uh, this complete stranger you start witnessing to by telling them about clean and unclean. I. That always just sort of makes me want to crawl under the table, uh, disappear. Uh, Not that there's anything wrong with a health message. Uh, That's a good thing, too. But I think somehow if we're going to be witness to a story, it has to be a greater story than fins and scales. And so with that in mind, then, uh, last week we began a discussion of, of witness in terms of a tool that the Bible took seriously, the writers of Scripture took seriously. You see, in ancient times, there was the trivium and the quadrivium, and these were the four pillars or three pillars, if it was trivium, of classical education, and one of them was rhetoric. Rhetoric was one of those things that was studied. Now, We use the word rhetoric today usually in a sort of negative sense when talking about politicians and what they say. That's about as much as we want to have to do with the word rhetoric today. 
But rhetoric was an art form. It had beauty. It had symmetry. It had all kinds of things going to it. People sought to perfect it. And there were three basic proofs, if you will, that were important in ancient times in rhetoric. Last week, we talked about one of them. The first proof in ancient times was called ethos. And it had to do with person, with character. And just in case you missed last week or you were here, but you're like me and your brain isn't retaining as much as it used to, we looked at some passages of Scripture in which Paul talks about his experience. I've done this, I've been there, I've been bitten by that, stoned by that, thrown in this jail, shipwrecked, you know. He's going down the whole list, and I consider it nothing for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or he'll always be saying, I, Paul, an apostle called by Jesus Christ. And you say, why do you have to lay the credit card down every time? We know who you are. But if you understand the way ancient minds worked and classical education worked, Paul is playing by the rules of rhetoric. And the first thing that he's doing in his letters and many times in the course of his letters is he's establishing a basis for credibility that enhances his argument and in some ways is the argument. You can trust my word by what I say because of what I've been through, is what Paul is saying to us, the Apostle Paul. By what I've endured, by what I've seen, what I've given testimony to, by my character. I was once the chief of sinners, that is to say, if we go by a righteousness that comes from myself, I was Pharisee of Pharisees. But if we go by a righteousness that comes from Christ, I was chief among sinners because I persecuted people of the way. I put them to the sword, to death. Paul's very frank about it. But this story is part of his ethos. It's part of his character. It's part of who he is, a zealot who was turned for Christ, who no longer kills anybody, no longer persecutes anybody, but travels the world sharing story, giving word. Rejected in Athens, but accepted in some, so many other places. Boldly speaking, sharing of the miraculous work and life of Jesus Christ. So that's our first lesson. Ethos comes to us as a clue about how word might still make a difference, how the story might still be shared in our culture today. Are you a person of word? Is your yes, yes? Is your no, no? Are you a person of character? Is there credibility to you? Are you honest in your business dealings? Are you fair with people? Are you judicial in your judgments, just and fair? Are you circumspect in your speech? And when you share a story, does it, does it come with the credibility of who you are? Would the story of Jesus have more or less value because of your telling it? Now that's a question, isn't it? Would the story of Jesus have more or less impact or value because you've been the one telling the story? That's ethos. Today we're at pathos. Our word empathy comes from this Greek word pathos, and what it is about is something that we might consider a little cheesy in this description, and yet our whole culture is based on it. The cheesy part is we're appealing to emotions, and we all find that a little bit crass because we see it badly done so many times. 
you know. You turn late night television on and there's, you know, children with flies on the tears that are going down their faces. And that may be real in some parts of the world, but the, the pathetic nature of what's shown and how this ministry that if you'll donate to or this cause, if you'll uh, send a monthly contribution to is going to reverse all of this, um, that's an appeal to your emotions, plain and simple. And I, you know, I respond to that. Not that particular commercial, but I respond to that. Our text today seemed a little harsh, and yet I wanted to, I wanted to bring it up because it speaks of heart. And in order to understand the Bible, in order to understand what it's talking to us about in terms of how do we appeal to the emotions of others, how do we tell a story that's engaging in their ears, we have to involve heart. Now, that's meaningless to, to us today, more or less, because we might still have reference to heart as a seat of emotion where love is concerned around Valentine's Day. There's still a number of teenage girls who like to dot their eyes with hearts. Uh, we have this sort of idea that the heart is somehow this place of love. Uh, and yet, really, the, the contemporary understanding is that it's a muscle that pumps blood. Now, we're learning a lot about the body and memory and emotion and cellular memory and some of these things. So it's a muscle memory. It's, it's, it's possible that the brain isn't the only seat of memory. There's actually such a thing as muscle memory. And our heart may, con- may contain memory of, of burdens we've carried or, or things that we have, uh, uh, stresses we've endured. I, I'm not here to say one way or the other. But we tend to think of it in physiological terms. For the Greeks... The heart was the seat of intention, and it was the seat of emotion. Intention and emotion. And so the Bible often refers to people's hearts. Very early on, even, we find in in cultures predating the Greeks, we find, for example, in Egyptian times, when Moses is contemplating... um, his mission, and is going before Pharaoh, asking to, to free God's people. There's text after text that says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. The hard heart is, we understand, to be not responsive. It's not able to hear the story. It's not able to respond to the story. It's not able to engage emotion. It's not able to hear truth. Now, this is a very important point that I'm making on this, so I'm going to asterisk asterisk it for you so that you can just kind of put this in here. When we speak of appealing to emotion and when we speak of the heart, we're not talking about a sloppy sort of silliness. We're talking about truth. Now, our emotions can mislead us, amen? Not been there? Never been misled by an emotion? No, we've all been misled by an emotion. We've all been misled. So our instinct is not to trust emotion very much. And yet, how many of you have had an emotional response to something that was bang on and you didn't even know why you were emotionally responding as you were responding? I want to see hands on this one. Classes for ESP will be over in the... No, I'm just kidding. 
No, we, have a, we do have a sixth sense, sort of, right? We can anticipate, we can feel. Emotionally, we can know a truth sometimes that we can't necessarily come to intellectually. Are you relating to this, or am I speaking Greek again? Okay, good. At least this is my experience. I don't want to be so far out on a limb that we can no longer connect on this topic. When we're talking about emotion, we're not talking about silliness. We're not talking about something that's patently untrue or pandering. We're talking about the capacity to connect with people's hearts in a way that they know that what they're receiving is true. This is where conviction comes from. Conviction. So our text today, harsh as it sounds, speaks to something really critical in our witness, really important. Matthew 15. These people honor me with their lips, word, lagos, but their hearts are far from me. Place of intention, a place of knowing, this place of emotional connection and truth this place where action and word are integrated and flow out of. Jesus is speaking of the Pharisees who were experts in the law. They lived judicious lives. They were careful in everything, devoted wholly to God. We sell them short many times. You know, theologically, Jesus was a Pharisee. He was not a Sadducee, and he was not a zealot. Paul was a Pharisee, not a Sadducee, not a zealot, although he became too zealous and became a zealot of sorts. Jesus is critical because he wants to offer the corrective that will make the religion work. And the corrective that will make the religion work is this. He says, you nullify the word of God for the sake of tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right. When he prophesied about you, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, and their teachings are merely human rules. What is your word in terms of your pathos? Are you listening? Are you willing to connect? Is your story from the heart, a place of veritas, a place where you've lived it? Is it not just a word that you speak, but is it a word that you inhabit, a word you live, a word you feel, a word you know in terms of pathos? Still with me? I want to tell a couple of stories. One just came to me by gift of God, I believe, this morning. And another is going to be found in Luke, and we're going to try to get to both. And if I do run out of time, I will try to cut it off, and we'll get back to this a little more next week. But I I would like to invite up Seth Grieve at this time. Seth, are you still here? Seth contacted me in November from Washington State. I'd never met him, never heard of him. He said, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, and I have uh, 
I was adopted, and I have been in contact with my birth mother, my biological father, and my biological father lives in Santa Clarita. And he says, I'm wondering if you could make contact with him. I said, does he want to be made contact with? So Seth did some research and found out that yes, indeed he did. And I'm very embarrassed to say that November became Thanksgiving, became Christmas, became my sabbatical, and I didn't make contact. I've apologized to Seth already. But Seth, come here a minute. God is working in Seth's life in interesting ways because Seth not only made contact with his biological family, um, those of you who know me and know my story know that I'm also adopted and that about four or five years ago, I made contact with my biological family back on the East Coast. And so this story has a lot of resonance for me. Um, but Seth, just tell me a little bit about your journey in this regard. Were you raised Adventist? Tell me a little bit about your background. Uh, this microphone is working for you. All right. Um, well, I was born actually at Glendale Seventh-day Adventist Hospital, just down the road here. And uh, my parents uh, found the group of children that were um, up for adoption and chose me out of that group. They were, ad- they were Adventist. And I know that's what I always say, not to interrupt. But everybody else, their parents were stuck with them. We were chosen. That's, yes, that's yes okay. exactly. Okay. I was chosen. Um, and, and from that point, uh, my family became missionaries, and we tra- we've done a lot of travel and things like that. So I've grown up in an Adventist home, grown up in uh, Adventist culture, and doing a lot of the Adventist thing, you know, going out and being a missionary, going out and spreading the word of God. Very good. Now, how old are you, Seth? I'm 19. 19. So you're beginning this journey much younger than I did. Uh, have you started college yet? I'm going into right yeah. I'm going into a, uh, a missionary training school. Have you guys heard of AFCO, Amazing Facts College, College yeah. of Evangelism? Um, I'm going into one that's very similar to it. It's actually over in Norway. Um, and I they know do... why. Why stay in California when know, you can right? go to <laughs> go to Norway? I, I get that too. I get that too. So, how did you make contact with your birth family, your biological family? What made you interested in that? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, through the years, my biological mom and my parents would um, send letters back and forth, and so I had grown up hearing uh, hearing about this conversation going on. I've always known that I was adopted. Uh, I don't remember a specific time finding out or anything like that. But then I wanted to contact them as well. And so I found my mom on MySpace and Facebook and started talking with her. But I didn't know any information about my now dad. Now you mean your birth mom there. Yes, okay. my, my okay. birth, birth mom. I didn't know any information about my biological father, um, but as I continued to talk with her, I wanted to know more about him as well. And so I finally asked her, I said, uh, do you have any, any more information on him that I can try and find him? So she pulled up some information and said, well, here's his Facebook. Uh, you can go and talk to him then. Um, so I found him on Facebook and let him know that I was his son and confirmed what he had heard uh, throughout his life, that there might be another um, boy of his that... Uh, might be out there, but he wasn't sure. So I finally confirmed it for him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was similar to my story as well. My birth father kind of knew I was out there, but didn't, and uh, really didn't have much information. 
and I showed up and happened to look like his dad. So it was, you know, 1-800-paternity-testing-never-mind, you know, kind of, yeah. <laughs> kind of situation. Um, so you've come to California to see these people. How was that? Yes. What, tell us about how you came to do that and, and what greeted you when you got off the plane. Tell us about this just a little bit. This is fun. Well, um, I'm going to visit my family, my adopted family over in Florida. Um, we're doing a little family vacation. And instead of taking part of that vacation, uh, or instead of spending that whole vacation with them over in Florida, I asked if I could um, take part of that and come here instead. Um, it was going to cost about the same um, both ways because it was two different parts of the vacation. So they said, all right, we'll send you down there. And so I landed here at uh, Los Angeles, and as I w walked out of the security, there was my family standing right there. And kind was, of an Anton, Antoine Fisher moment, huh? Yeah. yeah. It was, That's awesome. It was surreal. I didn't know. <laughs> I, I, I was shaking as I was walking through that airport. Yeah. It was an experience never wow. forget. That's so exciting. That's now, you have brought some of these people here today. You want to introduce them? Yes. Um, if you guys will go ahead and stand. Um, this, uh, this is my biological father and uh, two of his kids. His name is Francisco. Uh, his boy is uh, Junior. And Abby, my little sister. My other little sister, Layla, is with the Children's Church. So. Oh, very good. So how many half-brothers and sisters do you have then? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, th I think about six, six, right? Yeah, six. Now, your mother, your birth... Okay. Huh? Okay, stepbrother. So I have three stepsisters and one stepbrother. So family gets complicated family. really quick, yeah. really <laughs> quick. Now your birth mom's named Amy. Is that right? Yes. She's not here today. No, she's. But not. you got the chance to visit with her as well. I did. Does she also have a family? Um, no, none of her own. None of, none her, of her own. own. Okay. I'm, I'm her only child. Well, uh, you've just a little interview here with someone who is experiencing a story, the kind that you might see on daytime TV, uh, but better. And you can hear God's working in it. You can hear God's presence in it. And you can hear in his description of the way his heart beat when he came off the plane and, and, and that feeling. You can relate to that. That is this connectedness, this authenticity of emotion, and story, and how we appeal to what's true about our experience, and how we share what's true about our experience. Well, um, Seth, now that I've had the chance to meet you and to see your biological father, I'm hoping, sir, that we'll have a chance to connect and to share and to uh, discuss the truths of Scripture. And I, I wish you well as you enjoy the rest of your time here with this part of your family, and as you return to your family of origin, may God bless you on your journey. You. Give them a hand. Thank you.
Thank you all for participating. I appreciate that so much. Not everybody who will walk into a church for a first time and, and be willing to uh, be part of a story. So tremendous courage there. Thank you. Turn to Luke 15. And there's another story of family, one you're very familiar with. In fact, there are three stories right in a row. And in Luke 15, these stories, Jesus uses in a very powerful way. He didn't make them up. They were stories that were, especially the story of the lost son, were stories that were familiar, but in a different form slightly to people. So in Luke 15, we have the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. Now these are stories They're not necessarily grounded in historical events. They're illustrative. They're designed to communicate something and to convey a truth that comes in pathos through the heart. And Jesus tells a variation on it. You know the one about the lost son. We call it the prodigal son from the King James Version. This boy behaves outrageously. He's the younger son. The older would normally receive two-thirds of the inheritance. He would receive one-third of the inheritance. It could be conveyed to them at any time, but as we read in the story, the conveyance was that the father would be living off the estate until he passed, and it would indeed be the filial obligation of the family to take care of the father until he passed. But the son goes and says, no, I want it now. I want to cash it out now. I want to take it with me. He's not just asking for something outrageous. He's being incredibly hurtful, incredibly rebellious, and separating himself from the source of his life. So he takes this money and he goes, and you know the story, he squanders it and ends up in Jewish hell in a pig pen. And he doesn't have enough to eat. And he thinks to himself, he comes to his senses and says, look, what am I doing here? Even my father's slaves have a better life than I have. And he got up and decided that he would go to his father and see if he could be admitted back to the household as a slave. Jesus tells the story that the father is waiting And when he sees his son from far off, he doesn't wait. He runs down the path, this old man. And when he gets to his son, he he grabs him and he falls upon him and he kisses his neck. He's filthy, disgusting, dirty, and he's behaved abominably. And this is the love of the father. And he brings him home and orders the fatted calf to be killed. and, And they're having veal for dinner. And I know many of you are vegetarian, but that's actually pretty good di- pretty good dish right there. That, that's high end. We're... Veal for dinner. He won't hear anything of the son versus slave conversation. He puts shoes on his feet, sandals, which means that he's not a slave. Slaves were barefoot in the culture. Puts a long robe. He has authority and distinction, and he puts on his finger a signet ring which was like a credit card, a symbol of the family and belonging and power and money. He's restored. 
The older son is very angry about this because he's been dutiful. He's been taking care of the father's crops and, and uh, making wine and doing everything that, that the estates, rural estates, did in those times. And he's never indulged himself. And he's angry somehow with the father because not only has he taken this gift and squandered it, but he's been let back in. Now, normally under Jewish law, there would be no disinheritance for the younger man. This would have been understood as a gift, and he would have still been entitled to a portion of the inheritance. It's not clear totally from the text whether he's been cut off or not cut off. Most commentators would say he had been cut off, which would be unusual. Now, this is a, a, multi, this is a sermon told many, many times, so I'm going to keep this very brief. I've heard several different things that I wasn't able to confirm in commentary, but I've heard several different things about the story from credible scholars who tell me that this is how it would have been understood. First of all, the story existed in the time of Jesus already, but Jesus tells it in a way it's never been told before. The older brother's duty would have been to find and kill the younger son. Honor bound to do that because of the way in which his son, his younger brother, had disrespected their father outrageous disrespect. Secondly, the story would never, ever involve an old man running down a path to meet this guy. Ever. It would not, this was not part of the story as it was known in the day. Jesus is using the story and retelling it in his own way to illustrate much to the distress of his, his audience, I'm thinking, that the love of the Father is a marvelous contrast to the heart of the Pharisee. And that the love of the Father is responsive love. Gracious and forgiving love. Open love. There's enough. There's room. And we tell this story to this day because it has, even out of context, even with an emotional, cultural lens that isn't appropriate to the telling of the story in its day. It reaches us. It has an impact. We can relate as parents, as children, as rebels, as people who've done wrong, people who've acted stupidly or selfishly. We can relate. Jesus did this over and over and over and over again. And I want to leave you with this because my prayer is for us that as we think about what it means to build a life around the story of Jesus and as we think about what it means to be witness, as we think about the ancient art of rhetoric which we know nothing about and have lost but nevertheless can go to these proofs and remember that our character and our heart are part of the story. I'm hoping hoping that God will work in your life to help you connect, first of all, to your own story. Where do you come from? What have been your hurts and pains? Where have you seen the hand of God moving in your life? What's authentic in your experience? Don't recycle somebody else's. What has God done with you? What is your voice? in all of this. And where is your heart? Where is your heart? Is religion just intellectual? 
Is faith just a matter of belief or assent to doctrine? Is there something about your story that's moving closer to the self-sacrificing love of God? These are the questions. And only you and the Holy Spirit will together find the answer. So I hope to see you next week as we talk about word in Relagos in relationship to ethos, pathos, lagos, or ethos, lagos, etc. We are the story. You are the story. Amen. that we might connect the stories of our lives with the story of yours and that that story may be told from that unique perspective that only you can draw from each of us. May this be our witness to the loving and gracious God we serve. Amen.